Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. This is the second sermon within our sermon series entitled Pandemic of the Heart. Last week, we kicked off this series by speaking about the passions and the danger of the passions. And today, we go a little deeper into the furnace of the passions, that which creates uh, or inflames the passions, that is the human heart. When I was in uh, first grade, we had an art teacher, a really fantastic art teacher, who told us this story of an Indian emperor who became uh, rather cruel and vengeful. And uh, he uh, eventually met this attractive peasant woman and, uh, and without her consent, married her. She noticed, of course, right away his cruelty and wickedness, but believed that he could be won over through love. And so she became outlandishly loving and gracious to this rogue who eventually did, in fact, transform. And the art teacher asked us to depict this transformation in the heart of the emperor through an art project. We were, I remember this, to, uh, to make uh, 10 hearts in a row, each of them touching one another. And originally, we were to take paint that was blue and black. So it, was kind of an, it formed sort of a navy blue shade. And so the initial hearts on the left were to be cold to look cold and stony. And then, little by little, we were to add bright red paint to the mix. And with every heart that we painted, we were to add more and more red paint to the mixture until finally at the end, the hearts were beat red. And it was to depict this emperor's transformation from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And that really is the promise of the New Testament. The promise of the New Testament is a new cardiology that you as a human being can begin to love in a new way. The heart becomes a veritable portal to the powers of heaven. And so I want to talk about the heart tonight. But before we get to the beauty, we have to go into the horror show, because that is where our text goes tonight. The, The text actually has a very dim view of the human heart in its natural and non supernaturally inclined state. And you may know that within Judaism, Uh, The heart is kind of understood to be our epicenter. And I think that's strange. They're like, why would we necessarily associate sort of affect or emotion or a a thoughtful consideration with a blood-pumping muscle in our chests? Why is it that not only Scripture, but many of the ancients, and in fact many of our contemporaries do the same thing? Why is this? Well, it's because of what the heart is, the physical heart that is. It's something that resides inside us. It's unseen and therefore somewhat mysterious. It's also located near the center of the body. It also directly supports and feeds the body through the pumping of blood. And your heart is absolutely necessary to your physical well-being. You could lose a finger, you could lose a foot, you could lose an arm, you could lose a kidney, and you'd be all right. It wouldn't be pleasant, but you'd be all right. If you lose your heart, well, you're just dead. And, uh, and so you need it. Uh, and, and so the heart in many cultures becomes a sort of anatomical parable, an anatomical parable for our deepest feelings and thoughts. 
And it is both feelings and thoughts, right? Because Jesus, when he saw people, could read the thoughts of their hearts. And so the heart becomes a locus of thinking and feeling. Uh, And Jesus had a unique view of cardiology and a unique understanding of the heart. And Jesus' perspective was much darker than those of his contemporaries, and yet at the same time more hopeful. Well, in our gospel lesson from Mark, Jesus speaks about uncleanness and the odd source of uncleanness, namely the heart. So I'm going to speak about uncleanness, the source of uncleanness, and then uh, offer a hopeful word regarding the beauty of the heart that really can come to us. So uncleanness, I'd like you to read the text with me. This is in verse 15, where Jesus says to his followers, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that Whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it is expelled. Now, the immediate context of today's passage is really important for us to consider. Um, the Pharisees are griping. I mean, they're very good at it. Um, they're griping about Jesus' disciples because his disciples were not bowing down to certain rituals that were invented by the more strict religious expressions within Judaism. Uh, they were very concerned, some of these stricter groups, about the appropriate washing of vessels before you eat. Like they wanted to make sure your coffee mugs were really, really clean, but no joke, that your plates were really, really clean because they were worried about ritualistic or spiritual uncleanness. They thought that that would be enormously harmful to you and harmful to the people whom you served in your home, trying to be hospitable with dirty plates. They had a lot of concerns about this. Now, what is uncleanness? Well, this is a very complex subject, but let me summarize it. In Old Testament religion, uncleanness is not exactly the same thing as sin. It's not so much moral, but ceremonial impurity. And within the Old Testament, there are two primary uh, causes for uncleanness. There's the body itself, whenever the body itself, uh, not to get too graphic, but a little. Um, When the body has certain discharges, that makes it unclean ritualistically. But also, not just the body, but your diet. That's really where the big issue comes in. Your diet can create uncleanness within you. Because for Jews, not all animals are on the menu. Uh, In fact, uh, the, the menu excludes many things that we in this room appreciate. Lobster and bacon cheeseburgers. They're both out. Why is that? Well, some people used to say it's because the Jews were trying to express primitive health concerns. Like they knew that if you ate uncooked pork, it would be bad for you or that shellfish carried disease. I actually don't think that's accurate. Um, It seems that, that certain animals were regarded as unclean because those animals in a symbolic way represented chaos and disorder within creation. What do I mean? Well, As a Jew, you were permitted to eat fish, but not lobster. Why? Because fish lived in the water and could swim in the water and had gills and fins, and they looked like things that belonged in the sea. But lobsters do not swim. They look like land scorpions, uh, to quote Jim Gaffigan, and they have legs like a scary creature from from like the movie Alien. And, uh, And they crawl on their spindly legs as if they were a land animal, but in the sea, right? And so they represent, in some ways, disorder within uh, creation, uh, symbolically, of course. 
it becomes intrinsic in Judaism to, to live, and, and by living, I mean what you wear, you know, where you dwell, who you marry, and what you eat. To live in a way that is a contrast to all the other nations of the world. And you are to do things that are both morally and ceremonial, ceremonially distinctive from the other nations. To send a message. And the message is simply this. By keeping clean, by keeping clean and not becoming unclean, Jews become visible sermons of non-chaos, of order, of holiness within a fallen context. And when they did slip into uncleanness through discharges or through what they consumed, the result was almost kind of like a temporary excommunication. You were not permitted in the tabernacle or the temple for just a given season until the uncleanness was more robustly dealt with. But it created distance, that uncleanness, distance. Well, the Pharisees looked at their history, their very painful history, filled with attacks and a sabotage from the outside and filled with exiles in different countries. And they looked at all that and they said, you know why that occurred? Because of uncleanness, because we didn't pay attention, because we were morally impure, but also ceremonially impure. We were unclean. We never paid attention to it like we should have. And now we need to start paying attention or else we're going to have more pain and more exiles in our lives. And so they were not content with simply obeying the law. They said, we need another layer of protection. We need some extra insurance policies here. So we not only need to be concerned with what we're eating, we need to be concerned with the cleanliness of the dishes that present the food. Because if we're not pure with those, they might defile the food, and then we're defiled. You understand the logic, right? They're trying to build the sort of a Berlin Wall around Torah to, to make sure nobody breaks it. So that's what they did. They saw the external world as filled with sources of potential defilement. And that's why they were so perplexed by and angry with Jesus when he would entertain his dinner companions. Jesus had dinner with tax gatherers and street people and call girls, and they thought to themselves, now wait a minute, that kind of company could defile you. The external world around you could ruin your internal goodness. So what are you doing? What kind of game are you playing? Well, you know, today uh, we have some of those same assumptions about reality. We may think that's sort of ancient superstition and ancient food laws that have nothing to do with us. The same principle is often taken in by us as well. My grandmother had a funny saying that she would uh, frequently repeat proverbially to my brother and I, thinking that it would keep us from being wayward. <laughs> um, and the saying was, garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. What was the assumption? Ethan, you're a very good boy, but there are a lot of bad things out there all around you. And if you start partaking in the garbage that's all around you, you yourself will become garbage. And lots of Christians function that way, like there are threats all around us. And so Christians started inventing extra laws on top of biblical laws, right? So you're not allowed to see any good movies, or I mean any movies that are like rated R. Uh, you can't drink beer because beer, beer could lead to dancing, and you can't dance, and you can't even play card games. I just heard that one the other day. Card games, except Dutch Blitz, which is somehow okay, but I don't understand why. I don't even know what that is. Um, but the Dutch are good, so maybe it all works out. Um, and you can't listen to heavy metal, like Guns N' Roses. It's not 
an option, which is just so depressing. And um, but even Augustine started to be paranoid about this, right? Saint Augustine, I love him. You love him. I mean, well, maybe I don't know. I love him. And he, and um, and Saint Augustine said you have to be really careful about what foods you eat because if you start eating tasty food, you might like food more than God. Like, if you eat a really good Italian dinner, it could thwart your faith. And I'm like, oh, wow. I mean, you need to balance your medication. But, but, I mean, he believed this, right? He believed this, that it was very dangerous what you put into yourself because it could tempt you and lure you away. But in comes Jesus Christ, who teaches something about the outside world and its influence to defile. He says it's not what goes into your body that really messes with you. It's not that that brings the pollution no, it's, the news I have for you is far worse. It's not externally sourced in culture and movies and TikTok. Instead, the, the disease is closer. It resides in your chest already. Like, it's already there. Zushbet, too late. And then he talks about the source of uncleanness. So that's kind of a little lesson about uncleanness. Now, the source of uncleanness, this is verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes a variety of these evil things. Now, notice two things very quickly. First, Jesus redefines uncleanness. Notice that. Now, true uncleanness is not ceremonial, but moral. Moral, In other words, slander is worse than lobster. Yeah. Now, that's really important because many people in Jesus' day ignored what he called the weightier matters of the law. And for him, that always meant the moral component of the law. That's what he highlighted and, in fact, raised up in the Sermon on the Mount, not the ceremonial bits. But people ignored those things. Many were fastidious about cleaning their coffee mugs, but they were quite fine with resentment and exploitation and deceit and murder and hate. Um, And so he redefines uncleanness. He says, no, 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 it's really about the morals. And then he, he talks about the true source of uncleanness, which is not external but internal. Out of the heart of a man comes these evil things. Now, that's a shocking message in our day because aren't you told time and time again, well, trust your heart. What is your heart telling you? Follow your heart. It's like every Celine Dion song that's ever been written. Um, Believe in yourself, right? Wilson Phillips, listen to your heart. Brian Adams, straight from the heart. You get it, right? But then enter the Bible because the Bible is very suspicious of the heart. That's why the prophet Jeremiah very famously said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? It's a little different than trust your heart. And Jesus seemed to listen to more of scripture and less of Wilson Phillips. And he was helped by this because he had a very good biblical anthropology and understood that that which is the center of your being, the locus of your emotion as well as your thought, is in some ways deeply troubled and dangerous things spring from it. Now, this, is, this offers in some ways a surprising word to us in that sin does not begin with action or habits. No, it begins in the heart, with emotions, with thoughts. That's what the Sermon on the Mount teaches us, that all along we would understand that murder doesn't start in your hands or with a gun. Murder starts in the designs and plots and in the hatreds of your heart. And that's where the sin begins. And this is why in worship tonight we confess that we have sinned in, you know it, thought, word, and deed, right? But it begins on the inside. And then it leaks into your speech, and then it leaks out through your fingertips. And so that's our text. Here ends the lesson. This bleak teaching about the human heart. But there is a lot of hope. There's a lot of hope in the Bible about the heart. The Bible does teach that we can have a beautiful heart. 
And I'm going to conclude now with four little applicatory ideas that I hope will be helpful regarding how a heart that is defiled and unclean can become a heart that is, to quote the Proverbs, a veritable fountain of life. So here are four things. I hope they're helpful for you. First, we must realize that we as individuals can only deal with one unclean heart, our own. Remember, okay, so not to quote him because he's not terribly reputable, uh, but John Mayer, the song Waiting on the World to Change, I think that's what many Christians do. We're waiting on the world to change. We're, we want everybody else to repent. We want the, uh, our leaders to repent, our, our moronic families to repent, our dysfunctional departments to repent. We want MTV to repent. I just want them to play music again. That's all I want from MTV, from music television. But sometimes we're waiting for everybody else to change, and then we'll feel better, and then we'll change. But repentance doesn't work by looking to the outside. You have to deal with your heart. It's the only heart you're responsible for before God. That's it. You can't change anybody else's heart, but you have to deal with yours. Um, And so, in other words, it's not they but me. It's not blaming but owning. If you don't start there, you'll get nowhere. That's the only heart you have responsibility for. Point two, recognize that repentance is emotional. Repentance is emotional. It's not only emotional, but it begins there. Jesus says that the crisis begins in the heart. And so repentance has to begin in the heart, too. That's what metanoia means, a change of mind. But it's an inward change, something that happens within you that then produces all sorts of fruit, but it has to begin within. And that's why the church has various methods to help us see what's wrong in the heart, because we don't often know like what's going on within us. Sometimes we're very confused about what's right within our hearts and what's wrong within our hearts, what is of God and what, what is not. By the way, like, if you really want to know what's going on with you, you can find out. Like, if you really want to know what's wrong, you'll get an answer so fast it'll make your hair curl. Yeah. And how the church helps us to do that is through these historic things that we've often called disciplines, but like silence, solitude, fasting, confession. Try one of them and you'll learn something that'll change your life. Because it helps you to tap into what's going on. They're like spiritual CAT scans to locate the disease within. Counseling does the same thing, by the way. You know, it's a very sad thing for me that um, 80 to 90% of the people that I talk to who consider counseling, who really, I think, need it, turn me down and they don't go. Now, I understand that because it's a very fearful thing to open up your chest cavity to somebody else. It's a very fearful thing to express your heart as complex as it is to another person. But I can stand up here and tell you as your minister, who has been to counseling a lot, actually, that you won't die and you'll feel a lot better. It'll help you sort out your own heart. But we have to recognize that repentance involves the heart. It begins in the heart, not in in habits. You know, some people say fake it till you make it, like just do a bunch of stuff on, on the outside and it'll affect the heart. That's like not the New Testament vision. Well, fake it till you make it will work. Like if you have to put on a brave face, that only works if your house is on fire and you need to get the kids out. Like you have to like be, play the man, right? Or the strong woman. But generally speaking, repentance has to start in the heart and leak out. So we have to recognize that it has an emotional component. Number three, we have to note, notice the ventilation of the heart. The ventilation of the heart. What do I mean? The Bible teaches that the heart leaks. The heart leaks data. It leaks data through our speech and through our works, through our hands. Jesus said this, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, right? There are things that you accumulate are evidences of what is going on within. Our hearts and their deformations are sometimes very hard to understand, but we can begin to understand 
as we look at the pattern of our words and actions to um, show us what the heart is feeling. So I'm going to offer you now a personal example of something, but it's not about, it's not about sin, but it still gets to the, the point of the ventilation of the heart and knowing how the heart vents itself. So I, I once went to a therapist without knowing what was really wrong with me. So I went to this therapist um, and, and I said, uh, I'm just feeling kind of crummy and I just want to talk to you. And she said, well, it's, it's very evident what's wrong with you. You're severely depressed. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not. And she said, yeah, but you are. Like, it's objectively true. And she said, no, no, I think I'm okay. And she said, okay, here are a few questions. Are you sleeping well? No. Are you eating a balanced diet? No. Are you eating consistently? No. Are you exercising? No. Are you confiding in your friends? No. Do you have a good relationship with your family? No. Are you crying inexplicably? Yes. Are you inexplicably angry? Yes. Do you often wish you could get in your car and just keep driving into Canada? Yes. Every hour of every day. And I said, oh, wow, I guess I'm depressed. (laughs) But it was very helpful because once, because, you know, when you're in a bad way in your heart, sometimes you can't always perceive very clearly, but if you can have somebody help you see what your actions are and notice patterns in your words, you can then read back into your heart and understand how the heart is trying to vent itself, right? Yeah. So notice the ventilation of the heart. And lastly, most importantly, most critically, worship. Worship is really, really good for your heart. Worship is really good for your heart. Why? Um, because, well, to quote Jeremiah, that old pessimist who talked about the heart being desperately wicked, he promised a new heart. You know that in the new covenant? Like when the new covenant was established in Jesus's blood, one of the guarantees was that you would begin to have a new heart. And he said that, in fact, on this new heart, God would write the law. God would write the truth on your heart so that it would become natural and not contrived or forced, but something that really became integrated with you and a part of your deepest core that the deepest core could be beautified by God. That's what happens in the new covenant. And this worship service tonight is all about the renewal of the heart. You, you, you might know this, but like the word heart is used a lot in our liturgy. So I want you to pick up your bulletin, if you would, and realize that this worship service, this worship service that we're in, is sort of a, a new covenant surgical unit. It's a new covenant surgical unit that gives a new heart. The heart is mentioned in six different places in the liturgy. Let's look at page one. Page one. The colic for purity. This is our opening prayer right after the first hymn. This this kicks off our worship service. And we say to God, um, you are the one before whom all hearts are open. And then we ask God to cleanse the thoughts of of our hearts. What does that mean? It means that when you're in worship, you're understood by somebody. You're really seen. Like somebody understands you and wants to refresh you in the service, to clean things up so that you don't feel so terrible and dark inside. Yeah. So so that's the first prayer about, here's my heart, please cleanse my heart. And then page two, we have the summary of the law. And, and Jesus gives us this teaching that we are to love God with all our hearts. And that comes first, hearts, minds, strength. Yeah. And so it shows us our created intent that you were to take the locus of your being, the heart, and to give it to God. And that's where it would find its fulfillment. You know, that was its purpose, its design. Now, and also if we read the Decalogue instead of the summary of the law, like every commandment after each commandment, do you know what we say? Have mercy upon us. You remember it? And incline our hearts to keep this. You're so good. It's ridiculous how good you are. And incline our hearts to keep this. So not that we just go through motions, but that the core of us would love it, right? And then later, there's uh, 
uh, there's a prayer right after the summary of the law. And it asks God to renew our hearts and bodies in the ways of God's commandments. So take my heart and help me to really live into what was just said. And then later at the communion liturgy, this is page five, page five, there's this thing that goes back to a saint named Hippolytus, who is sort of, he's interesting. He's very complicated. But he wrote the first communion liturgy that we have. And this little bit called the Sursum Corda, which means lift up your heart, goes back to him. And in, in the liturgy, it says, lift up your hearts. Now, why does it say it there? It's because we're now considering the loftiest expression of Jesus's love for us, which is his, his offering of himself on the cross, memorialized, signified, and given to us in the meal of Holy Communion. And now that we're entering sort of the Holy of Holies, if you will, and we're going to say Holy, Holy, Holy from the Sanctus, now that we're entering that sacred place, we have to lift up our hearts to heaven. But now the heart can be joyful because the heart has something to rejoice in, the redemption of the world. And then, page six, whenever communion is being distributed and as Eric will at the table announce Holy Communion, he'll say the gifts of God for the people of God, take them in remembrance that Christ died for you, and you remember the rest, and feed on him, you know what, in your hearts, by faith, with thanksgiving. Feed on him in your heart, it's so weird. But it's seeing that the, the heart is like a spiritual stomach. The heart is the thing that digests the gospel. The gospel goes right into the heart of a person. Right? And that's where redemption lives, in the very core of your being. And then lastly, page eight, last page of the thing, there's a blessing in which we ask God to guard our, guard our hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, as you leave this place, you do so under the complete exoneration and affirmation of your heavenly father, um, who has promised to be your warrior, to guard the new heart and the development that's occurring within you. The new heart, right? And so this is why worship is good for the heart. It's all about taking my heart as it is, um, which is, which is um, corrupted and yet being beautified by the Lord. And it's giving it over to him, saying over to you because of the gospel and having it cleansed and renewed and strengthened so that your heart can be a veritable portal for the purposes of heaven. And therefore, it's not like you're always stuck. You know, it's not like oh, you always have to just retain the same emotional core as you, as you had five years ago. That's not true. You can actually develop as a human being a more and more uh, refined in the image and likeness of Christ and be delivered from the, from the filth within. You don't have to stay defiled in that way forever, that there really can be some gains in this life and, and God can have his way and you can be freed up on the inside. And this is my closing line to you. The man with the most beautiful heart in the world is the one who loves you the most, always. He doesn't need you to change your heart or your habits to love you. He already loves you long before that. And it's ultimately this man who makes the navy blue hearts into the beet red ones. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They could not take your breath.